Welcome back to How Do You Know, the podcast where we crunch the people behind the numbers. I'm Christy Valli. I'm Rebecca Cato. And I'm Bridget Mulvey. And today on the podcast, we're talking to Nicole C. Nelson, who is an associate professor in the Department of Medical History and Bioethics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and an affiliate of the Holt Center of Sciences and Technology Studies. She previously worked as a postdoctoral fellow in social studies of medicine at McGill University. Nicole's work examines scientists' assumptions about the natural world and how these assumptions shape scientific practice. In her award-winning book, Model Behavior, she examines how animal behavior geneticists' beliefs about their systems shape their research with mouse models. Her work has been applied to clinical practice in oncology, working with researchers as they applied novel genomic technologies to chemotherapy-resistant cancers. She's currently working on a book about the scientific reproducibility crisis, and I feel like we're kindred spirits because she's specifically interested in how scientists conceptualize variability differently, depending on if it's coming from their own studies or between their study and someone else's. I'm so excited for this conversation. Nicole, it's absolutely wonderful to have you on this podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Christy. I'm super happy to be here. So can you tell us a bit about your current work? Yeah, absolutely. So what I'm working on right now is trying to understand the history of attention to reproducibility issues. One of the things that happened right as I was finishing up my dissertation work where I was doing this lab ethnography of animal behavior genetics was that these conversations about failures to replicate where researchers were getting different results between laboratories really exploded onto the scene. And some of the people that I was studying were involved in those conversations that had been part of those failures to replicate in their own field. And what really surprised me was the way that those conversations kind of took hold and kind of ripped through the NIH in particular, which being this you know, massive, large federal organization is you know, not one that's sort of geared for quick change. And yet by you know, 2011, you kind of had buy-in from the office of the director, 2014 announcement of changes, 2016 rolling out those changes. And I was just like, wow, this is really a lot of change fast. <laughs> and so I kind of wanted to know, well, What triggered that? What set the groundwork for it? Why was it that this was a moment where people across fields were really all of a sudden caring about this thing? And so this is what I'm looking into now, trying to understand what are the kind of conditions of possibility for this conversation and how does it play out in everyday life? So that's really fascinating because so I'm teaching a class in reproducible methods right now. And I originally came up with it in 2016. And so the timing of things has become really important because it was really on the edge when I was first teaching this class. And now I'm, I'm talking to students and they're like, oh yeah, well, you know, reproducibility, everyone, it's been important my whole life. And <laughs> it makes me feel old. <laughs> um, but th- this, this idea that, you know, it hasn't always been this way um, is really an important theme. And so this represents a huge cultural change. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, to some extent, I think these kinds of experiences have always been there. One of the really interesting things about the data that's come out on reproducibility issues is just how incredibly widespread it is for scientists to experience this moment where the data they're producing with their own hands doesn't line up with something else that's out there, be that their own data or somebody else's published data or the lab mate who handed them off the project. What we've seen is that the vast majority of people have that experience. And in my own research, what I found is that's an almost universal experience. In a survey that I did of a little pocket of 80 grad students, we had one who didn't identify any experience that was something like that. 
79 of them were like, oh yeah, I've had something like that. So I think that those experiences have been around for a long time, but the vocabulary and the framing of, oh, this is part of the reproducibility crisis, that's what's different. And that, you know, then sort of sets us up for different kinds of actions and ways of approaching it. So part of what I've been really interested in is trying to ask people not have you experienced your reproducibility, but have you experienced a situation like this and sort of describing a scenario to them and then letting them say what that was, what that experience was. Did they perceive it as a failure to replicate or did they perceive it as something else? Because I think that interpretive flexibility about what exactly those moments are is really crucial to understanding what the shift has been. So what do you think sparked the shift? then in the framing and the vocabulary? One of the things that seems to be very crucial in the world of biomedicine is these two reports that came out back to back in 2011 and 2012, which both came from pharmaceutical companies, one from Bayer, one from Amgen. And both of them were really similar in that they were reports from in-house target validation, doing air quotes over here, target validation services, which are basically these components of pharma companies where before they kind of start sinking a bunch of money into going down a particular research pathway, what they do is they kind of take the interesting result that exists from the literature and see if they can make it work in their own hands. Because the received wisdom of pharma is that a lot of academic work doesn't work. So at this moment in, you know, 2011, 2012, and a few years before that, there's a shift towards translational medicine, again, air quotes I'm doing over here, where a lot of what was happening is that pharma companies were trying to essentially outsource some of this work to universities and try to, you know, see if they could eliminate this stage of the process, right? Rather than doing the in-house validation, see if they could just take the published literature and kind of run with it. And so the people that worked in target validation wanted to show why it was that they were really necessary, essentially. And so they published these papers that were sort of summaries of their experiences. The one from Amgen, for example, was a 10-year stretch under the tenure of one individual at Amgen, where he's like, all right, let's look back at my portfolio of all the projects that I did. And out of all the things that we tested, how many of them actually worked? And the number that they reported was super shockingly low, was 11%. (laughs) Uh, And so that scared the pants off a lot of people because, you know, there'd been kind of this received wisdom in the venture capital pharma community that maybe it was a 50-50 on academic stuff. But even, you know, a lot of people within the industry thought, well, okay, 89%, that's very, you know, that's not great. And then what happens after this is that after these results sort of get out into the media, and, you know, they get picked up by a number of high profile venues, Wall Street Journal, Economist, and then Francis Crick, head of the NIH, gets questioned in a Senate Appropriations Committee meeting by the head of the committee about this, saying like, hey, we're giving you billions of dollars. Are you not producing stuff that works? And so obviously this becomes a thing um, that, you know, they have to respond to politically, but also from what I really gather from talking to a lot of people at the NIH, it also became a thing that a lot of people wanted to respond to sort of personally and ethically. They also expected that, you know, results would be more stable than this and they were really surprised. So it was not just a kind of like, we've been pushed into a corner, let's do something, but they really felt like it was a, a moral obligation to try and make change in the system. So that's fascinating that it it kind of came down to money, a big money motivator for reproducibility. And a lot of the reproducible and open access advocates of today 
are really focused on sort of the, um, well, almost radical socialist benefits of reproducibility and open science. So I was wondering, like, how do, how do you think that that tension works within the culture of reproducible research? This is such a good question, and this is an ongoing area of research interest for me, because I think you're absolutely right that people have this association with open science as being left-leaning, anti-capitalist, liberatory, working against the system of intellectual property, which tends to shut down information and limit access to it, and that open science can be a real opening up. But you have to consider that once the data is out there, then you have to have the capacity to actually use it. And you need to consider what people are going to use it for. And that's where things can start to get really varied. So one of the kind of almost accidental fieldwork experiences that I had as part of doing this reproducibility book was that around, let's see, just before the beginning of the pandemic, so I guess I, this would have been January 2020, there was this little Twitter firestorm about a conservative-leaning organization that was holding a conference on the reproducibility crisis. And somebody tweeted about it, making fun of it, because the conference speakers were, in the draft panel, 100% white men. And so, you know, the Twitter guy, the people who were tweeting about this were like, oh, you thought the mantle was bad. I present to you the manference. Uh, so this really kind of like blew up the Twitters, got my attention. But what really got my attention when I started looking at it was the stance that these conservative-leaning organizations had towards open science. They were really strongly open science. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. And so I kind of flew out there to go talk to some of these guys. And what I came away with as a sense is that they felt very strongly excluded from academic spaces, which tend to be very left-leaning. And they felt like open science was really a way for them to crack the nut of academia and get access to data so that they could do reanalyses and control for things that they thought were important because they felt like academics with their own biases were, you know, kind of missing out on some important components of the puzzle. So I think this is an interesting dynamic with open science that we don't talk to enough that if we want science to be truly open and truly democratized, it does actually mean taking it out of these spaces where expertise is kind of controlled by institutions and opening ourselves up to a much more radical world where you have stuff like pro-industry reanalyses of health data that might affect EPA policy. And that's the kind of thing that I think we really have to consider in thinking about what the future of open science looks like. Yeah, I thought you were going to say that they wanted to have the data so that they to serve the purposes of industry and profit. Also a thing. <laughs> I am 100% sure that there are people that are thinking about that as well. And like, who doesn't want a whole bunch of nicely clean data that you can do some mining on, which doesn't even require you to license it. So yeah, I think that's a component of it too. That's kind of interesting because so we talk about Creative Commons licensing in my class and students immediately lean towards these more restrictive licenses with non-commercial applications. And then open science advocacy generally leans towards the more open licenses. And so the question of, you know, how much of our academic contribution do we maintain on that data? How much control do we maintain of that data in order to keep it still like within the purview of what we intended for it? But then there's the, you know, potential of being applied in so many other different ways. And so I see a lot of that tension in that in the community, the open advocacy community really pushes for 
total openness in that radical sense. But is it as radical as the folks? Oh, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> is it as radical as the open advocates are saying, or is it supporting those capitalist goals? Yeah. And there's flexibility there, right? Like it's not, I don't think that you can say that, you know, if we adopt open practices, therefore liberatory politics follow. Like that's, you know, that's not a line that you can draw. You got to realize that these, these are tools and they can be used by different people for different means. Just, you know, as an example of how I think that thinking on this has shifted really productively over time. When I was an undergrad student, those were the years in the early 2000s where there was this big Canadian Supreme Court case about the patent over the Onco mouse, this genetically engineered mouse that uh, had this intrinsic susceptibility to cancer. Could you patent a whole mouse? So there was a whole bunch of conversation basically about what the IP system was doing. And the conversations that really emerged from the academic spaces at that time, I think made the important shift away from talking just about profits and being like, grump, grump, it sucks that DuPont wants to profit off of this mouse. Like, yes, that's a component of it. But what people started pointing out is that this was really more manifestly about control. It was about limiting who got access to this basic research tool and that some people would license broadly, and maybe some would say responsibly, so that many in the research community could use it. But you could just as easily use your IP rights to make sure that nobody got it. <laughs> and so in that context, open science looks really liberatory because then it takes away that, you know, card that somebody can play to keep science out of somebody's hands. But, you know, we're just entering an era now where I think we start to need to give more attention to what different kinds of power dynamics emerge in this scenario, you know, that we're trying to build out basically in the world of open science. So I think that's kind of like IP 2.0 is let's think about, you know, what some of the entailments and possibilities are within this open science space. And that's intellectual property. Yeah. And I can't help it, but I was like, I wrote down as you were talking about control, I was like, power dynamics, and then you're like, and power dynamics. And so when you think about ways in which power plays out here and maybe what broadly the public researchers, you know, what to think about into the forming of systems related to this, are there ways to make this less dangerous? And what would count as dangerous? Or is that like a ridiculous question? I don't think it's a ridiculous question. I think the problem is just that we're like, not yet at the moment where we've got the empirical answer. Like, in a way, what we got out of that debate that happened in the 90s, 2000s around gene patents and higher life form patents and this ratchet up, 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 up of what was patentable within the world of biomedicine, what that got us is a really good set of case studies about the sort of dangers and promises, right? Like, we saw some really neat uses of patents where, for example, a bunch of researchers within the NIH, intramural researchers, were like, well, great, what we're going to do is patent everything because then we can absolutely guarantee that nobody else will be able to lock it down and we'll be able to license it perpetuity. Very in line, you know, with kind of like um, Creative Commons ideals is like, we'll use the IP system, but to make it open. So as to what the kind of like spread of affordances is, like what can people do within the system of open science? I think we're kind of early days of figuring out what that is. And you sort of need the empirical cases to see the lay of the land before you can start to say, oh, these are maybe the interventions that we would want to make to sort of shape these in the way that we value. That's my feeling, at least, is that we're kind of not yet aware of all of the possibilities yet to be able to say with certainty, like, do this. At least I don't feel like I can say that yet. 
And I did just want to clarify NIH as well as the National Institutes for Health for maybe the casual international listener. (laughs) 100%. Thank you for that. (laughs) For the Canadians in the audience, the Canadian equivalent of CIHR. (laughs) My family. And so for you, then, when we think about ethics, the ethics would be evolving as we start to learn more through the empirical cases. Yeah. So for me, there's kind of like a set of core ethical commitments that you can say already. You know, you can articulate your values. And I think that those values are maybe different for different people. But for me, one of those core values would be providing access or ways in for different kinds of people to be able to participate in the scientific process. And in that case, I find myself in the sort of weird and comfortable position as like a super far left leading person of being at these conservative organizations where they're like, hey, we should be able to participate and being like, you're right, I I agree. That aligns with my core values that we should really be able to open up the scientific process. I think you can articulate what your values are and what you're aiming for. And then how the system evolves so that it stays in line with your values. That is to me the sort of like ongoing question of like, you sort of build a thing, you think it's going to do a thing, and then you have to see, does it actually do the thing that you hope that it did? So thinking about ethics, ethnography seems to be your main method of research. So I was wondering, because I think we have a lot of listeners across different disciplines, if you could explain that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So take in your mind the classic anthropological vision of the anthropologist who goes out to study the, again, air quotes, other somewhere with all of that sort of colonizing original vision. But then, you know, sort of imagine that, but happening within your own sort of social context where you're using it to study yourself or institutions that are nearby around you and trying to really say, well, like, what is the culture here? What is, you know, the sort of thing that people value and that they're working towards? What are the relationships? How do people interpret their beliefs and give meaning to the stuff that happens to them? And like, let's say science is a little mini society, how does it work? And so what that involves is a lot of sitting with scientists and observing and doing what we would call participant observation, where you kind of get in there and get your hands dirty and actually do some experimentation with the scientists to try and understand what their life world is like and how it makes sense for them. And I think that a core value of ethnography is that everybody's actions in the world make sense if you can understand it on its own terms. And so when you're kind of in the position of outsider, you may look at some decisions that people make and may think, well, why would they do that? (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. And I see this playing out in some reproducibility discussions where, for example, people look at practices like masking, aka blinding, and they'll say, well, why why would anybody choose not to do this? This is such a basic scientific thing. You know, it must be because they're bad scientists or they're incentivized to do other things. But then when you go and sit with them and look with them and you just figure out what's going on in their worlds, you start to see this interlocking system of, um, you know, decisions and institutions and relationships that actually makes those choices make sense and makes it much harder to think about changing those things. So what I think good ethnography really does is it takes the things that from whatever present vantage point, you know, seem really settled or really incomprehensible and helps switch it up a little bit. It gives you an explanation for the incomprehensible thing, or it maybe, you know, pulls the rug a little bit out of those received explanations so that you've got some more space to play and other options can seem open to you because you've got new ways of framing an existing problem. And you're in a history department at the University of 
Wisconsin-Madison, but then science and technology studies is your field. So it seems like you're kind of spanning the social sciences and humanities in your own work. So I was wondering how that plays out for you in your work, in your research, and, you know, thinking about what having ethnographic empirical data, the reproducibility crisis for yourself in research, if that is something you have to consider. Definitely. Yeah, my appointment is a total mess. So, you know, the average listener will not be interested in the eight departments that I am a part of. But it is completely fair to say that, you know, I'm somebody who did a BSc in the sciences, got really interested in studying science as a human practice. And so went to do this training in ethnography and kind of general social science methods, found myself in a department of history of science, because they were interested in the same questions about epistemology that I was like, how we know what we know, even though they were using historical methods, and I was usually these contemporary methods. And then through a series of events, ended up in a med school. (laughs) And now my primary appointment is actually in the School of Medicine and Public Health, where I interact with a lot of these future physicians and, you know, giving them kind of um, medical humanities type training. So I've been all over the place. (laughs) And that can be a challenge in navigating those interdisciplinary spaces, because the norms of those spaces can be really different. If you look at some of the research coming out of bibliometrics and scientometrics about just like what the general publication patterns are in fields, you can see that the humanities and the social sciences are just super different. So when you straddle those two fields, you straddle a lot of norms about what a good article looks like, how many of them you're supposed to have. And so it requires you to do a lot of articulation work about why something is the way it is and why it is that other people do it this way. Fortunately, that's a skill that you have in abundance as an ethnographer. But like, just to give you a, you know, a a concrete example for humanists, you know, the the norm is, is that you're going to have largely sole authored papers and that you're not going to have a ton of them because you're doing all the work yourself and they should be long articles. They should be really in depth. So it's like, you know, quality over quantity. So when I produce some of these social science articles or participate in these group efforts, they're kind of looking at this and they're just not really sure how to interpret it. So I had one article that I was on years ago that was a plus one article with 50 other authors that was, you know, this massive article and it was really agenda setting exercise. Like, let's get together and talk about what research we think is needed in this field in the next 10 years. In this case, it was really social science approaches to animal welfare. So I thought that was a great initiative to be part of, was really, you know, proud to partake. When it comes to the history department, they're looking at this and they're like, what do we do? Is this one fiftieth of an article? Like, (laughs) uh, so then you got to sort of say, okay, here's why it is that there are all these people are authors, like, and kind of do that articulation work. And that, you know, it entails an extra burden for sure. But you've got tenure now, so... I got tenure now. (laughs) Now they believe you. (laughs) (laughs) We're in jazz hands territory. Fantastic. Yeah. And I had a lot of supportive mentors here who, you know, got it and were happy to help me, you know, sort of do that work. But it's absolutely work that needs to be done once you get out of the grooves of your individual system. When you want to ride between the rails, you know, then you got to do that sort of translational work. Yeah, we see how that plays out here too. Like, so our handbook in my department, it's like, well, you publish two papers in biology journals every year and you go, well, okay, but what if, what if we didn't? And the thing is we were a department full of interdisciplinary people. And so we, we have to think about these things more broadly and what represents a good 
science, <laughs> like a good unit of output in this like really, really varied environment. Mm-hmm. And thinking about power and justice issues, it really cuts both ways because in some senses, having that clearly articulated standard, you produce two biology articles, is a thing that can protect people who are in marginalized groups because you know there's a clear standard that people can say they're meeting it, it's good. But at the same time, that clear standard can then be this real barrier for people that are doing something that doesn't quite fit the standard. So there's always this kind of need for you know some standard, but also flexibility in that standard in order to really do both of the things that we would want to do. So how do medical students respond to you when you talk to them about these broader issues of medical ethics and perspective and technology and everything in their world of medicine? Well, that's a great question. I I do love teaching this group of students because medical students are, they're a unique culture in that they have this firm commitment to sort of objective empirical science. But at the same time, a super important strand of that culture is that the art of medicine is a humanistic practice. It involves getting to know your patient and trying to figure out within the context of their lives and values, what actually makes sense. So they do have both of those lenses that they're able to draw on. The difficulty is sometimes just that they're not able to port over that humanistic lens and use it to look at the scientific data, right? They see those things as sort of existing a little bit worlds apart where you've got the data and then you apply it to the patient and that's where humanism comes in. So the trick for me is really in trying to get them to think about the process of making data (laughs) as something that is a humanistic process. And that is something that can be sort of emotionally fraught sometimes because, you know, for people that have really devoted their life to science and take this seriously, it's almost like you're challenging a kind of religious commitment, you know, that the, the data is objective and the data is true and we can rely on that. And it can flip people into this nihilism of like, well, then nothing, <laughs> nothing's true. And, you know, that's not helpful either, right? Like there is flexibility in how we interpret stuff, but there's also not infinite flexibility. You know, we don't get to make anything up. Otherwise, it would be pretty easy to make some drugs. We'd just be like, this one works because I said so. So a lot of my work, you know, I would say is kind of helping people find the middle ground where they go through the pendulum swing of like science is so objective and that's why it's awesome to, uh uh-oh, science is done by humans and that's a really scary thing to sort of being like science can be done by humans and awesome (laughs) and that that is the most realistic way to think about, you know, what happens in the knowledge production world. I love that acknowledgement of instead of the humanness being always this, it is bias, it is bad, it is like to be shoved aside to help scientists, medical students, and the public understand a little bit more of that nuance of some of the, the beauty and affordances of the human side of science, not only the negatives that come with that humanness. hmm Yeah, I think one of the best ways into having a conversation with somebody about this who hasn't really been thinking these thoughts before and is having a hard time with it is just thinking about the kind of classic question from the philosophy of science about problem choice. Why do you choose to study what you want to study? There are n number of things in the world. There are a million natural phenomena to study. So why are you interested in this one? And that's a place where I think it's easy for people to recognize values 
and those can be biases, but they can also be passions, right? They can also be these motivations that are like, because I see people suffering from this thing and I want to help. And I think that a lot of people would see that and acknowledge that as being a good thing in that it does drive people to spend their time on it, spend their money on it, devote their resources to it. So you got to keep both sides in there in that, you know, people's desire to pick a particular problem can be subject to biases. Those biases can be bad, but that humanizing element of, you know, science and medical practice is like what drives people. If you take it out, you make people robots <laughs> and that is not a great way to live your life. You, so you get you experience that resistance with uh, medical students sometimes in terms of acknowledging and recognizing the humanistic aspect of science as a process. How about practicing scientists, researchers as well? Have you experienced that sense, that fear with you talking about the reproducibility crisis, that we're kind of undermining our foundations Mm -hmm. or we don't want to air our dirty laundry in public, as it were? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There are some people, I think, who think that the best possible thing we can do for the credibility of science is to be as honest as possible about the process that in the end, what is going to save us is not trying to shine science up and make it look more objective, but to kind of take the stance that essentially I was advocating for to say, yes, science is a human practice and always will be, but (laughs) this is what we got to work with. Welcome to the world. Like, let's do this thing. There, There is no magic thing that takes humans out of the element. Then there's people, though, that really feel like the reproducibility crisis is something that people are going to latch on to for political ends. So part of the fervor around that conference that I mentioned that was part of this conservative-leaning independent institute was people who really worried that basically what was happening there was a bunch of sort of pro-industry scientists who were deliberately taking the uncertainty that scientists were putting out into the world and using it for an overtly political end to say the science is not settled around PM 2.5 or climate change, or, you know, we've seen this tactic in a lot of places. And that's a real fear. I think that's a thing to, um, you know, to think about and balance because it's a historical pattern that we've seen a lot. (laughs) That that is the thing that happens. It actually reminds me of, it was a while back, but the Twitter conversation about hashtag overly honest methods. There was a lot of people just really enjoying finding a lot of catharsis in sort of the, okay, let's, let's let the veil down. Let's be honest about, you know, we chose those time points because it meant that we didn't have to sleep in the lab, but (laughs) also then there was the criticism of this is undermining our confidence in science. Like this is undermining the veil, (laughs) it undermines the veil. (laughs) And so it's, it's really interesting to sort of see those play out even without the context of reproducibility, just this scientist as an authority figure question. Maybe to bring it back to science education a bit, like I felt this play out in my own career when I was going through my BSc, you know, as a young person and coming in with this sort of textbook shiny vision of science, right? And then getting some experience in the lab. And my experience in the lab was doing a bunch of Western blots, which, um, you know, basically for the uninitiated here, you've got kind of like a sheet of gel, you block it off with some milk powder <laughs> and do your next stages. And I remember coming into this lab and the equipment here to do this was a glass lasagna tray, a box of milk powder. And the tech who was sort of walking me through this protocol was like, you may end up being responsible for buying more milk powder and it has to be carnation. It can't be no name. <laughs> And I was like, okay, 
And, you know, then the next step was, was, you know, we were going to assemble the blot and put the textbook on top of it. And it was, you know, maybe Jean's eight was the edition of the Jean's textbook when I was going through. And she's like, this one seems to be about the perfect weight. So, you know, we sandwiched it up, we put a paper towel on top, and then we put Jean's eight on top. And I remember in that moment sitting there and thinking, this is science? Like, (laughs) and just being really surprised and totally feeling like I had that moment of looking at the emperor behind the curtain and being like, oh, wow, this is not nearly as shining as I thought it was. (laughs) One of the things that's really interesting to me, though, is that at some point in their careers, people sort of transition, you know, into this space where for at least some of them, they start thinking, yeah, it's messy. And yeah, it involves carnation instant milk powder and lasagna trays, but it's still objective. And it's like they're able to have this switch where they themselves experience all this mess and nuance and conflicting results. But then somehow it's somewhere there's a little bit of a flop that happens and facts kind of like pass over from the realm of human to the other earthly realm of untouchable truths. That doesn't happen for everyone, but you know, it's a, it's a thing that happens for a lot of people where at a certain point, it's like there's this status shift that happens where the knowledge becomes independent of them, even though they were the ones grinding it out in the trenches, making that knowledge. You know, I've seen a lot of that in education for pre-college students from young children to those just getting ready to maybe think about college and how if they've been doing science through following just like these sat labs in a book and they're like, I do this. And of course I measure out 10 milliliters at this time and I wait 20 seconds and then I wait another 20 seconds and each where and I record this data. And like, it's all just like, this is the only choice. This is what I do. And so when they haven't problematized that at all, or they haven't had an experience of thinking about what are the other options that could be used for this here? Well, this is not the only way. It's really interesting to see the people who liked the neat version of science and were like, I feel safe here. Mm-hmm. This, I do it, I can, great, and then I'm done. And others are like, wait a second. If it's not that, oh, wait, so maybe I'm enough. Oh, wait, maybe I can do this then. Mm. If it isn't only this thing where I need to feel perfect. And it's really interesting to see those varied reactions to problematizing it and to to humanizing the science. Mm. I really love the way that you connected that up to that sort of sense of scientific self-identity, which is a thing that I see a lot of in my research too. So one of the things that I started doing as part of this reproducibility project was talking to grad students about their experiences of failures to replicate. Because, you know, my noticing of the existing literature is that it's a lot of thought leaders, PIs, but the people who are writing the op-eds about reproducibility are guaranteed almost 100% not the people who are there running the experiments in their labs. Like the people who've got the hand-on, hands-on experience are going to be the grad students. So I thought, okay, let's go talk to them and, and see what's up. And what I found was for a lot of students, when they had this expectation that the literature was infallible and that the natural world was this regular, repeatable thing where if you're following the steps, you should get the same answer. When they didn't get that answer, what happened was a lot of self-blame. They're like, I have messed it up somehow. And for some people that really impacted their sense of scientific self-identity, you know, where students would say, I thought to myself, what am I doing here? I have no business doing science because I clearly can't do it right because they weren't getting the answer. Whereas it was a little bit different for people usually further on in their grad careers who had a bit more skepticism of the literature. They kind of had a nuanced sense that there were some facts that were gonna be pretty stable and then other ones that were brand new and might be super variable. 
some biological systems might have a lot of variation. Other ones were kind of really dialed in. And those people who had those expectations about the literature and about the natural world, when they got a result that didn't line up, it gave them a little bit more space to be curious and sort of be like, huh, well, is it my new buffer? Did I forget something? Is this plant different? Like, you know, what's going on? And so it, it created a little moment in which the possibilities didn't seem so foreclosed. It didn't seem like the only possibility was is that the researcher themselves did it wrong. So that's really something that I'm interested in pursuing to think about how we can foster that space of openness to give people that moment and that space, not only so that people can see themselves as scientists, but also for the good of science, <laughs> because we lose a ton of information when we get these different results and rather than sort of seeing like, is, is this a thing or is this just bad buffer? You know, we just lose that information because people are like, oh, let's hide that one because <laughs> that was clearly me having messed it up. And like, think about the things that we could know if that weren't the first reaction. That's beautiful. I mean, so the, the messiness can lead to the curiosity and opening up the possibilities. I think that that, that version of science, yeah, it, it definitely helps science and it helps students or people learning to do the science. I think that's a beautiful version of the humanness that honors that people can make mistakes. It can be that, but we shouldn't just think that everything is that. Mm -hmm. There's no problem if we made a mistake either. Like, great, we all do in our daily lives and in science because science is human. We don't become automatic people who act just one way and get certain results just because. And I think that's what's so amazing and frustrating about it. Absolutely. Science is not done by robots. I mean, it could be, but they'd be robots programmed by humans. So it's just kicking the can a little bit further down the hill. Like we never get rid of that intrinsic problem. But I, this is, you know, a thing that we need to think about in a, a labor system, really, if we take a kind of labor politics lens at this, in a labor system where the labor is done by learners who are by their very definition figuring stuff out and so are absolutely going to have moments where they're going to make mistakes and everything else. And what I think we need to resist happening within that system is that the sort of emotional burden, but also the scientific burden on arguing for a new interpretation falls to the learner who's got the least power in this whole situation to see themselves as authoritative with respect to knowledge production, you know, to talk to their PI and say, no, I really believe that the data that I'm getting here is representing something different. That's a, you know, it's a hard position to argue from. So it's a sort of, you know, it's a, it's a quirker, it's an inbuilt problem into our, our system here where we've got big power differentials that happen in this academic knowledge production process that I think we have to be really careful and mindful about. Christy, you know, that reminds me of the article that you shared with me and Rebecca at one point about authorship and how to kind of problematize who gets the lead author role. Would you talk a little bit about what you see as maybe that changing or being part of how science can change lab dynamics and power dynamics? Oh, absolutely. So that article that was out of Clear Lab, Max Lebron's lab, they run a feminist ecological collective lab that I think is just the most exciting way to operate a lab because it's this model of authorship is about looking at sort of the center, the heart, they refer to it as the heart of the paper, where you're, you're looking for the center theme, and then they're looking at all of the labor that goes into it. 
they're not just looking at sort of the classic. So we have in ecology, we like to use the classic model of conceptualization, funding, data collection, analysis, writing. And so those are those are the five ways you can contribute to science. And there, there are a lot of other ways that you can be supporting science. And that the Clear Lab model really explicitly uses that. And so how do we use that to acknowledge all of the different levels of learning, I think is a really interesting question, like, because we've got layers upon layers, almost no, at least biological science is done now with by one person. But when you have more people, you have more chances of more perspectives. I'm not going to say biases, I'm going to say more perspectives. And that makes it a little bit more problematic when we're trying to figure out what a unified product is. Did you want to talk a little bit about that idea? Yeah, definitely. The thing that it makes me think of first or come to mind first is this kind of classic feminist science and technology studies view of situated knowledges or strong objectivity. And basically the argument from these feminist philosophers was that we we shouldn't give up on the idea of objectivity. We just shouldn't think of it as being kind of like a property that's achievable through some sort of like rigid scientific self, which is a position much more easily occupied by some kinds of people than others. And instead, what we should think about is objectivity as being a thing that's collectively produced, not just through the peer review process, but by deliberately and specifically seeking out views which are not represented within the scientific community at large. So taking marginalized views and sort of using those as a self-test, like, all right, do we have lots of people that are working in this paradigm? Great, let's go find someone from another one. Do we have all men scientists here? Well, all right, let's think about inviting some women scientists to the table to talk about what's going on. And so the, the feminist um, you know, science and technology studies view on this idea of strong objectivity was, is that the way that you get your best data is by really thinking about what's represented in a holistic sense and then deliberately seeking out the difference and trying to see what that difference does when you add it into the mix. Rebecca, I really want to know what you're thinking right now. What does this mean to you? Well, I was actually, I think it's great to talk about um, science and technology studies a bit more on the podcast, I think, because I think a lot of the kind of topics that we cover are so related to or have been discussed in the field, but almost in a way that seems bracketed off from natural sciences. So you've had, as you say, there's a feminist philosophers within STS having these kind of discussions and debates for decades. But how do you see that interaction of the kind of the learning from that then permeating into the practice of science? This is a question that I have been dealing with more and more head on <laughs> as I begin to get deeper into these spaces that are about reproducibility and meta-science, because one of the very unique things about those spaces is that there's a strong contingent of scientists who believe that science is a human process. And that kind of shared belief is really necessary to do a lot of work together. Because when you're really living in different paradigms where some people believe that what they're doing is kind of you know, absolutely objective and that they can be objective, and other people believe that, no, it matters that you're a human, you gotta do a lot of work to find some ground. Whereas when you come in with this belief that, yeah, science is done by humans, it matters that it does, it's done by humans, you have a, a lot more sort of shared stuff to work with. And so within these reproducibility spaces, what I've found that's really interesting is that there's a certain contingent of scientists 
who really want to advocate for reform within their communities and see philosophy of science and STS, these anthropological, historical, sociological approaches, as being a place to look to for how to think about reform. And so they're kind of turning to the community and saying, hey, help us. And I was on a panel with a social psychologist named Simeon Vizier, who has written a lot about this. And in her intro to the panel, she's like, let me try and explain to you what it looks like from my perspective. From my perspective over the last 10 years, I was here doing my science thing. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, maybe my science thing is not as solid as I thought. And I felt like I was on an island with a person who was bleeding out and I needed help. I needed someone because I was not the qualified person to do something. And so her, her sort of plea was, man, if I sort of stormed into your field, historians and philosophers of science, and was like, oh my God, <laughs> give me some knowledge. Let's grab anything I can find off the shelf. She's like, I'm sorry, but it was only from a sense of urgency. Like, I really want to hear what you have to say. And what I said back to her from my end was, is that one of the difficulties from the STS or history and philosophy of science end is feeling like you've got the moral authority to tell people what to do. So it's a really unusual situation to have scientists coming to you and saying, tell us how to change our stuff. Like, oh, okay, that's, that's different. And feeling like you're the person who should step into that role of authority and whether or not you're the right person to do so. But also for me, you know, personal reservation is when you spend your life trying to unsettle received assumptions by showing how much more complex the web is, you get a really good sense of what it's going to mean to pick at one thread in that web and hope that you can make change over here. And that just makes me so personally hesitant to be like, if you do this, <laughs> things will get better. Um, because you know, I, I know that the way that's gonna play out is gonna be stochastic and unpredictable. And it makes me very wary about stepping into those sort of you know, policy facing roles where I'm telling people what to do, even though inaction is itself you know, sort of a moral and ethical problem. Sitting on the sidelines where other people are trying to do stuff is not necessarily the best way to be in the world either. So I find myself really kind of trying to thread the needle between maintaining, you know, that sort of sense of it may not be my role, you know, to be the intervener here, but I maybe should not, you know, be able to sit totally on the sidelines that I should help in some ways. It's a tricky place to be. Yeah, I was thinking that about your articulation you were saying about your different disciplinary areas within your institution, but then your articulation across disciplines of your ethnographic findings, because then it's not intended or designed to be reproducible. That's not the purpose. That's not the idea. So then again, like making these like general recommendations on the basis of that, it is not what it's there for. So does that play into it, the, the challenge? If I were to make gross generalizations, I would say that most scientists are interested in probing the universal. What they want to find is patterns that hold true across a very wide variety of situations. And what most ethnographers are interested in is the local and the specific. What's unique about this culture, this time period? How is it different? What does it do? So we have sort of opposite sensibilities, which is not to say that you can't bring those sensibilities together. But generally speaking, you know, I find what a lot of scientists are looking for is, well, all right, this is this is fine for the people you studied, but does this hold everywhere? <laughs> Whereas my position as an ethnographer is, of course, I will not find the same thing if I go somewhere else. Of course, when I bring my own body and my interpretive framework into the field, 
people respond to me in a particular way. And I elicit responses and information from people that are entirely unique to me. And if you send in to different human, you would get different stuff. And that's part of the commitment of ethnography that in a way the ethnographer is themselves a tool. And you got to think about the ethnographer as a tool, as having all of the sort of pros and cons of any scientific tool, that it's awesome at some jobs and will suck at others. And it's great at eliciting sort of specific interactional information about how people respond to each other and interpret what's going on. But if what you want is an answer that's like, will all universities or all professors respond this way if we do this? Um, you may be picking up the wrong tool. <laughs> this might not be the one. I can kind of shake stuff up for you and say, go look here. You haven't been looking here. But if you want to know if this applies to everyone, go pick up surveys as a method. That's going to be a better method for you to really figure out how generalizable this phenomenon is. So I guess I'm interested then, as we talk about ethnographic methods and what the affordances can be, how have ethnographic methods contributed to the understanding of the reproducibility crisis? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you, you know, personally, some of my own contributions that I, at least I'm trying to make in the world. I'll, I'll give you the specific example of masking. In this kind of, you know, important landmark article that comes out in 2012 from a group of researchers at the National Institutes of Health, they produce what they call the big four things that scientists should be doing, which are blinding, randomization, doing sample size calculations, and having data handling procedures, right? This is it. This is all what we need to do. And what we see from the empirical data is that scientists and um, don't consistently do all of these things, and they especially don't consistently do masking. So what is the explanation for this? The received wisdom in the literature is that the incentive structure of science sucks. Scientists are incentivized to get it published, not to get it right. If you don't try and, you know, make masking worth their while, they're not going to do it. That's a received answer. So for me, what my contribution as an ethnographer is to be like, huh, that seems wrong. Um, you know, I know that identity is a big driver of why scientists do what they do. I, I personally feel skeptical that most scientists wake up and are like, I'm not going to do that unless you tell me because you know, they have this personal commitment that drives their work. And people will put in a lot of effort for things that they believe matter. So why do people not think this matters? What's going on? And so as an ethnographer, what I you know, do then is go and say, all right, show me what you do. What's your normal work practices? <laughs> why, why do you do this? Why do you think that this is important? Why do you not think that this is important? And by doing that, you get this whole spread of other stuff that you can look at that provide you opportunities for thinking about new approaches and new policy. To get super specific, one of the things that I found for animal researchers that was a real barrier is that when you have your mice that are in your study, they're usually not being cared for by an individual laboratory. They're in a core facility where they're managed by a staff of professional animal care people and veterinarians. And particularly for long-term studies, like let's say a cancer study where you've got a mouse there for a year and a half and uh, you know, you're kind of checking it to see when it develops tumors, they're gonna live in those core facilities where they're getting that ongoing care. Great, makes a lot of sense from an animal care perspective. But those people in that animal care world have their own concerns, their own sets of regulations. And one of the things that they care a lot about is not mixing the animals up. So they want all of this identifying information on the little cards that are stuck to the front of the cages for the animals. Meanwhile, for the scientists, that means when they come in to do their tumor observations, it's plainly obvious <laughs> who's on treatment and who got the sham because all that information is right there on the cage. 
So now when you kind of watch how this plays out in real time, what you see is that some scientists believe so strongly in masking that they're willing to go and fight individually and try and get exceptions to those protocols and do their own thing. But other people don't want to damage their relationships with the people that are caring for their animals day in and day out. They're not willing to fight that fight. And so when you go and actually look at the interaction between federal guidance, um, institutional protocols, interactions between coworkers on campus, you get a much more complex explanation, but you also get the opportunity to say, okay, hey, rather than just trying to do webinars with scientists about the importance of masking, how about we go talk to those core facilities and talk to them about whether or not there's change that's possible within their procedures? Like, could we satisfy their need for identification while at the same time having masking in place? That gives you a whole new avenue to go look at that wasn't available before because the received explanation, scientists are driven by incentives, is so constraining. So that's a really interesting line of reasoning. And it kind of highlights this tendency of humans to assume that people who are doing things differently than them are bad. And mm. <laughs> like, so, you know, like, oh, well, they're, they're motivated by the wrong incentives or, you know, they're, they're, they're lazy or what have you. And I was wondering if you could talk about that sort of almost antagonism between scientists of using different practices. Mm, yeah, I would make a small revision amendment to that to say people have a tendency to generalize their own experiences <laughs> and assume that what has been possible for them is equally possible for other people. And that's a thing that can become problematic, I think, in a lot of spaces, but has been so especially in this reproducibility movement in the sense that what you have right now in the people who are talking about reforms is mostly people who are practitioners slash meta scientists. They've worked in their own labs, led their own labs, you know, done PhD research, but then they also have this meta interest in trying to reform the field as a whole. So they have a little cache of personal data about what it was like for them in their institutions and their structures. They get some, you know, more data from interacting with other people who've got common interests, but they're not really systematically collecting data about people's experiences. They're kind of generalizing out from their own data. And when you take that approach, it can be easy to assume then that when people are doing things differently, they're doing them wrong because you're not seeing all of the conditions of possibility that place constraints and enable behaviors within the local circumstances of other people. And that can make for things that look really un unhappy and antagonistic. See Twitter, like it can lead to things where then, you know, people come in and sort of stomp, stomp, stomp. If you're not doing these things, then you're just making excuses because they were able to do them. And so shouldn't everyone be able to do them? And my like most charitable interpretation is that that's a failure um, to recognize that they're generalizing inappropriately. And then the fact that you personally were able to do something does not mean that that is going to be a universal experience for everyone. I think feminist psychologists have been really especially good about pointing this out and saying, whoa, hey, we need to think about positionality in open science and how there are different risks for early career researchers, women researchers, people of color in adopting these practices vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, their senior white male colleagues. And I did want to just ask, what is meta-science? 
<laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> it's a new word for something that some people would argue has been around for a very long time. But what meta science like brand themselves as, or you know, they they'd say that their core commitment is that they're scientists of science. So what they want to bring is scientific methods, and what they mean is largely quantitative methods. Well, there's some space there. It's open it up a little bit. Bring to bear quantitative methods on the scientific process itself. So some of that looks like studying publication patterns and trends. Some of it looks like doing interventional experiments where you say, well, hey, let's give people badges <laughs> for you know doing open science or pre-registering their protocols. And we'll see, do the badges change their behaviors? So it can kind of be observational methods. It can be interventional methods. But the idea is that the object of inquiry is the knowledge production system. And the methodology is going to be scientific methodology, typically quantitative. Although I think there's there's a space there where there's a little bit of growth through appreciating, appreciating qualitative methods. And I myself have been right there, kind of being like pushing on that envelope, <laughs> trying to trying to get a little bit more space and be the thin end of, edge of the wedge to try and insert some space for qualitative methods in there. Yeah, because arguably philosophy of science, history of science, science and technology studies is that and has been that. So yep. the newness is the methodology then. Yeah, there's a real question as to whether or not history of science, philosophy of science is science of science, which involves a lot of boundary work about what science is. But then there's also a kind of difference in orientation between those who are deeply interventionist, situated in their fields, and feel as though they have the moral authority to act, versus people who feel as though they are observers of the systems and whose ability to observe in some sense depends on being able to maintain a bit of critical distance. In ethnography, what we would refer to this is as the insider-outsider position, which is you need to get close enough to be able to see what's going on, but if you get so close that you're deeply imbricated in the world that you almost actually can't get back out, you lose the analytical distance to kind of bring in concepts from outside the world. And that, that is your literal value as an ethnographer is to be that human bridge, basically, where you can bring in perspectives that are not in the field to help make sense of the perspectives in the field. So that's a kind of distance and position that historians and STS scholars try to maintain, which is not part of what's going on in meta-science. Meta-science is very much about being in it, <laughs> absolutely in the field. And also being interventionist, using that position as sort of a person who's been there and can tell you that you should be doing differently to try and be the sort of champion for making change within their own community. And Christy, I was just wondering if with the, the anecdote about the psychologist then being like, oh, I have to come and now find this work and speak to these people, if that sort of resonated at all with your own experience. That really does make me reflect on a particular experience that happened recently that made me realize how directly we need science and technology studies people within the sciences. And so it comes from my experience teaching biological statistics. And so I've been increasingly uneasy with the fact that I'm teaching frequentist statistics, which is based on binaries. And, you know, I said, oh, you know, p-values, they're binaries. This is, this is a feminist problem. And I started looking up things and 
I'm like, oh, I'm a revolutionary. I'm, I'm really going to hit this. And I found a paper that discussed it, this idea of p-values being an anti-feminist binary reinforcing view of science from 1995. And I went, oh, okay, well, I'm not the revolutionary I think I am. There is <laughs> lots of people thinking about this, but people within my field are not thinking about this this way. And so incorporating feminist philosophy into approaches to science is something that we just need to do in science. We just need to actually acknowledge that there are people who have already thought about this and we need to examine our own culture and bring the people in who can tell us what we've been doing. And you are a revolutionary in your field, Christy. Well, but there's other people who are out there doing it a little better. <laughs> All I have to say to this is, Amen. And let's hang out. You know, I, <laughs> it is impossible for one person to know all of one field, let alone other fields. So like, I think anybody who's moving from a spirit of generosity is going to assume that these kinds of things will happen all the time, <laughs> you know, that you're going to be taken in directions that lead you towards the edge of the field, which are going to lead to you sort of thinking thoughts that feel revolutionary from your standpoint, but from other people's standpoints are sort of, you know, deeply trodden on. <laughs> and so I think that one potential human reaction that can happen is to sort of be like, grump, grump, grump. Why did nobody know about my expertise? Why did no one come find me, you jerks? <laughs> Whereas I would way prefer, you know, that if we sort of move from this place of generosity to sort of be like, I'm so glad you discovered this. Come on in, let's talk. <laughs> You know, and use that unexpected bridge where, you know, you find this paper and you realize, oh, my God, there's another person out there as a moment where you get to kind of walk across and meet and something comes out of that. Because I think it's really the human relationships, even more than the exchange of intellectual info that can be really the basis for building interesting transdisciplinary stuff cool stuff comes from people who enjoy working together. And certainly that's been my personal experience as well as sort of when you when you find people who are really willing to sit with you and be patient with you, that's when you get neat stuff that happens. Well, that is, I think, a wonderful place to close this conversation. This podcast is produced with the generous support of the Mozilla Foundation and the National Science Foundation, and with input from community members from Mozilla, the Environmental Data Science Inclusion Network, and our colleagues and students at Kent State University. A special shout out to Jen Zink for audio production. Music featured in this episode is Sunbeams by Monkey Warhol and obtained from the freemusicarchive.org under a CCBY license. This podcast and its accompanying materials are licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license as well please like, share, and use our stuff. If you ever want to share feedback or ideas, reach out to us on Twitter at cballai, that's C-B-A-H-L-A-I. Find us on Squarespace at How Do You Know, all one word. And that's it. So long till next time. Keep looking beyond the numbers. <laughs>